which should be in here. But it's April 17th is our next Saturday trip going down to Mexico. So thank you so much, Ryan. Good morning. How are you? It's week two. We made it. You all came back. Hey, it's, last week was pretty special, and, and it was very celebratory, and uh, it was a really kind of a surreal day. And I know for uh, Hope community, and I know for Soundhouse community being here together, uh, doing church together, it's, uh, there's just nothing better. And so uh, I want to say hi to everybody who is outside. I know you, I can't hear you, but I know you're out there. And so I want to thank everybody for coming today. And um, I just let me just open in prayer, and then we'll kind of get right into it. We have a lot to cover today. The best way for you to follow along is you can download our app, which is a Soundhouse app. You can get on all platforms, or you can just open your Bible or open your Bible app. And we're going to be looking at uh, Ephesians 5, uh, 22 through uh, 6 through 9. And we're in this series um, called Christian, and we're studying the book of Ephesians. We've took a lot of time just to work our way through the entire book. We cover a lot of verses, um, and I wish, especially on a topic like today, I wish I could take weeks to do this. And so I'm going to do my very best to try to like give us the, the meat of what these passages are leading us into. Uh, but this whole book of Ephesians is almost like the beginner manual for Christian living, especially as you're going to open up and read the rest of the writings of the apostles. And so it's a great starter if you're looking to study the works of the apostles in the New Testament is to start with the book of Ephesians. Paul had a very clear purpose in mind of this book, and um, the entire drive of this is to speak to these Gentiles who are going to join into church with these, uh, these people from Israel, uh, the Jewish uh, people, and then begin to have be believers as one under the banner of Christ. And so this entire drive, the entire thrust is building identity, speaking to who you are and to who God is in our relationship, talking about unity and that it will be the work and the power of the spirit along with our willingness to follow his lead as far as building unity. And one of the things he gets in today will be about the unity of the house. And so we'll talk about that in just a minute. Let's pray. God, we love you. We thank you so much for your word. And God, we just pray right now um, just for our culture. God, we pray so much for uh, the area we live in, the health of our culture, the emotional health of our culture, the relational health of our culture that we live in today. And God, I pray for every family in here who is their own household. And God, whether they're married or single or, or, or you name it, God, I just ask that you just, as we walk out today, we're enriched by your word. That God, you grow us individually and spiritually. And God, I just ask that you help us have eyes to see, guide us, and give us ears to hear and speak to us what your word is saying today about a household and about us as individuals and about who we can be as believers, but also as a greater witness to the name and the power of Christ. A working, living, moving creation inside of our hearts that influence and inform our life. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you have your Bibles, you can open up 
to Ephesians, uh, Ephesians 5, starting in verse 22. Now, just for context, we're, we came out of a very, very important statement that was made in the last section of Scripture. And Paul is saying that if we're going to go somewhere, it's going to be by the work of the Spirit and to be filled with the Spirit. Now, there's a lot of different thoughts about being filled with the Spirit. You know, some denominations believe that the filling is a, a, a moment that happens separate from Christ. Some believe that it happens with Christ. Some believe it's a daily refreshment and going to the Holy, to Holy Spirit and say, fill me with your Spirit today, God. I'm not here to represent any of those or individually, but I would say all of them are represented in the statement of that. I think that we must go as people to, to seek out being filled with the Holy Spirit for the leading and the guidance in our life and directing us. You know, uh, in this passage, Paul is going to begin to lay out three relational dynamics in this section of Scripture. They're laid out very interestingly, and you'll notice how they're listed. So you're going to see him list a, a at this time, especially contextually, because remember, this is really uh, Rome at about, what, 55-ish A.D. This is Rome that we don't understand that culture. We don't know what's going on there. We can't really fully grasp it. We can read about it, and I'm, I'm a, I love history, but we can get an idea of it. But we don't fully understand the culture. So we're going to have to just for a minute pretend as we read these passages that we're, we're not fully in our culture now. That we're trying to seek to understand who his hearers are. Anytime you're going to read and interpret scripture, you want to, number one, make sure you're asking, who are they writing? Who is he writing this to? Scripture and value translates for eternity. But sometimes you'll hear contextualizing in here that is important to understand that he's writing to a people. And the more you know about those people, the more you can grasp what he is really trying to communicate to these people. And so he talks about the relational dynamics of marriage. He talks about the relational dynamics of family and the relational dynamics of labor. And in this case, it's forced labor. In, 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 in some ways, people would sell themselves into slavery or labor to pay off a debt and eventually be free. That was common in that day, but he's also speaking to forced labor. And those who are believers, who become Christians, who are slaves, but free internally, but then have to go back to their master. And how, how, how do they do this as a free people and as equals as the Bible says. And the Bible says that there are no more male, no female, no slave, nor free, right? That we are all one in Christ. That's the context to keep in our head as the uh, ever, uh, uh, I think, efforts that we make as a Christian community to strive for. Because in Christ, we're all the same. In Christ, when we come to the communion table, it's a table of unity where all of us here are from different places of life. All of us here have different experiences, and all of us here have different um, means of finances, and, and we have different educations, and we're all different, different backgrounds, different races, different uh, cultures uh, that we maybe some of us grew up in, but we all come to the table as one under Christ. And so if you're going you're gonna to notice this as far as how the body of Christ works, that Christ is the head, 
they all are part in a role, and we all play into that in unity. And that's what Paul's trying to really drive here. Because if anything will divide a church, it will be disunity and dissension and, and, and miscommunication and all these unspoken things that need to, have to be spoken. Anything that will divide a home or a relationship will be, it'll be division and miscommunication or abuse of some kind. It will be a taking advantage of the other. It will happen and it divides it in all of our relationships. We can work all the way down. So he's going to address these three things. And it's in need. These relationships are in need of spiritual transformation. And the starting place he is going to address is the household. Church life is different. Have you not figured this out? Like, it's like taking a photo for Instagram. You get all your kids to pose. They're all miserable. And afterwards, they're fighting with you. But everybody's like, we had a great day. And it's like, that's not true. I never believe anything I see on the internet. It's just really difficult. And, and so I, I have myself have participated in that way. And the thing is, is that in the Christian church, we can put on the face. And I'm not saying that here to say to shame anyone at all. What I'm trying to say is uh, it's easier to maintain a public face for X amount of time. But then the household is where it all is at. Our, our personal life. Our life outside of just kind of following some you know, social rules of the church that we might feel we need to follow. The household is where it's at. So Paul then, then starts to direct them to not just when you're with others in church and community and unity, but let's go ahead and work all the way back to where actually you practice it every single day. Let's talk about your household. And so we have to, you have to go with me a little bit culturally to really frame the way we're going to read these passages and really extract value from these passages because they are valuable. You got to come back in time with me a little bit. Marriage in ancient culture, especially Roman culture, when Paul's writing to these Gentiles in Ephesus and they're reading this, they are full on in the Roman culture of marriage. And let me explain it to you a little bit. In the Roman culture, and today we kind of wince when we just think back on history, and we've come a long way, thank goodness, in history, is that in this place, the husband was everything. He was the one who made all of the decisions. The rights of the spouse, the wife, even, even in the, uh, the arrangement of the marriage or marriage itself, it wasn't a marriage most likely out of love. It was one out of either opportunity or convenience. There were no real rights that women had then. They couldn't own anything. They didn't even have the rights over their own children. That has changed so much. We, we, you couldn't issue a divorce no matter how horrible your husband was. Only he could do that. And it's, in, in a lot of cases, there was great injustices happening in that time. And at the end of the day, even in infidelity, the, the wife had no power. It was a really different time. And I know whenever we examine history, we go, wow, that was really brutal. And, and thank God that we've advanced so far. But when you're thinking about what Paul's going to write, it's quite shocking to the Gentiles of their day. It's quite uh, what we would say, some people would read it and go, that's pretty regressive. But what Paul's gonna write here is quite progressive for its time. And so I think we have to make sure when we read passages like this, we don't get caught up in the mi miscontextualizing the 
the scripture and really extract out the value that he's communicating. For parents, he's going to cover what it means to be a parent. Now, you just have to understand this. That children had it rough. Growing up then, like, now you get a trophy for everything. Is that not true? It's like, you're so great. I know you still live at home, and, you know, you're in your 40s, but, you know, we love you. Look at what you're doing. You know, like, I get it. We celebrate our kids, and we absolutely should celebrate our kids. This was not quite the way it was back then. Uh, You'd probably be surprised that parents who were dissatisfied with their child at that time had the right to put their child to death. You hear that, Ava, my daughter? Uh, That is shocking to me. Parents had the right. This is crazy. They had the right to obviously abuse them. There was no, like, you know, CPS you could call. There was no, no one's coming to come take care of the issue. And one of the things is that, uh, that shocked me as I was researching children in ancient culture, especially at this time, is that they could be sold into slavery on, only a max of three times. I mean, that's, that's how children were treated. When Jesus is saying, let the children come, and everyone's going, get these kids out of here, we, we would look down and go, those are precious children coming to Jesus. That's not how it was. They were a nuisance. And so he, Paul is going to address something that will bring this culture, these Gentiles, forward in at least these first steps of beginning to be a parent-child relationship in a healthy way. And then the other part he's going to address, we could probably say that, yes, things have changed. We do not have slaves in our country now. But this idea of being bound in service or in service, there is a relationship dynamic Happening, We would say, maybe you feel like, oh, my boss is a real slave driver. But the, the thing is, is that he's addressing an attitude even when you're in places that are difficult and hard. And he's addressing the attitude of those who are in power. You're going to realize Paul's addressing three power dynamics. There's the power dynamic of the husband and wife, the parent-child, and the master bond servant in these. So he's going to deal with slaves. So sometimes they sold themselves because it was, it was better to be housed and taken care of and in service to someone. And eventually when they worked this debt off, they could be free. Sometimes that was the case. Sometimes they had taken them after war and brought them in and sold them to other places. They had no rights. Some and many considered any slave to be half of a, a human being. There was a lot of mistreatment in people all throughout ancient history, and we know that. This is different than the slavery that happened in the United States. The slavery in the United States was done racially. This is not the case it was. It was very mixed of anybody that they took, they just put them into into slavery or sold them into slavery. It was a brutal, harsh culture. Um, The thing is, is that even in slavery in that day, majority of the Roman population if you took a whole census of everyone, uh, more than half at least were slaves. So it was a big part of their culture. But culturally, we have come a long way, right? We can marry now for love. It almost, if you read studies, that really didn't start happening until like the late 17, 1800s where people were marrying for choice and love. We have resources to even help our marriages if we want to uh, do the work there. 
We have women's rights and values that have increased tremendously and still making progress. Uh, children's rights are greater and protected more than they ever have been in history, at least I'll speak for our country. And slavery has definitely been outlawed in this country and the movement towards making those, uh, uh, those horrific acts even better and better and growing towards uh, absolute equality is happening and moving more and more and we want more of that. Opportunities are expanding in labor and we uh, have opportunities to work and don't have to put ourselves under the care or uh, essentially bond servicing anymore. But we have a long ways to go. And why I wanted to say this is because, before I read these passages, is because it's important that we understand where Rome was. And when we read it, how we can, how we can take this for our, love, our own lives. Because um, uh, even right now, for our own country, we have a long ways to go in these three areas. And, and, and it's sad what I'm going to read to you. It, it doesn't make me, like, happy. I'm not trying to prove a point. But I think it's important to point out a reality so scripture can then confront us about these things and, and really maybe inspire us to do more about these things. Marriage right now, 62 million, there are 62 million married couples in the United States right now. Three, it's a 3% decrease since the 90s, but not a lot. There's a lot of reasons for that. I don't even need to go into that, but it's the third highest divorce rate in the entire world is in the United States of America. 90% of people in America say affairs are immoral, but 16 that at least admit it say that they've had them. And so there's a difference between what we think is good and what we are embracing as moral. Now, France, on the other hand, 40% of France says that it's not a moral issue. So they're at the very bottom of the list of, of, of that when it comes to whether it's right or wrong. 20 people per minute, sorry, per minute are abused by an intimate partner. So we still see these remnants of behavior that is unhealthy and destructive to the family and to the relationship. Ten, that's 10 million people per year. There's 20,000 phone calls that go into hotlines for help for domestic abuse a day. So we have come far, but I don't know if we've come far enough. And there's a lot of work to be done in our world and in our culture. Children right now, there are four million children born each year in the United States. 3.2 million abuse cases with children are reported every single year and investigated. So for the amount of kids that are born, there's a roughly around that amount that are experiencing that type of hardship and difficulty. And the, toil, the, the toll on the family and children is tremendous. And I don't speak, if you've experienced that in your childhood, I don't want to speak lightly about it or try to dig anything up. I think it's a reality that's happened in a lot of people's lives. And if you look at just even what the effects are and the difficulty having to process and work through that, it, it can really be detrimental to our culture and society and to people's lives. Work, we have 155 million Americans employed right now. 57% who are employed have been polled and said that they've left their job because of a difficult manager, an unhealthy work environment. 
And so Paul's going to address some of these things. All these stats I'm reading to you are because we should realize that we're not so far past things as a culture. We need to be, some things need to be addressed. 76% of employees who don't feel valued at their jobs are seeking other employment. So it, there's something going on that's been going on for a long time, just in a different way. So Paul lays out the groundwork for believers to rethink our relationships, how we manage our relationships, how we approach our relationships. I titled this message, it should be up here, New Relationships, and this is the Christian conduct behind the closed doors. This is what happens behind the scenes, you know? Mm. And so he starts right away, and we'll get into the scripture, and uh, with husbands, or sorry, with wives and husbands. And I'll just tell you this, whenever I read this, I have presented this passage to couples when I'm about ready to perform their ceremony, when we're preparing their ceremony, and I'll have that passage on there, and I've gotten it literally, like, like the bride looked over the passage, looked at that one, and crossed it completely out, sent it back to me and said, I will not have that read at my, um, at my wedding. And, uh, and I understood. I understood. When we're talking about husbands and wives in this passage particularly. And so I never fight them on it. I said, can I, can I really talk through that passage with you a little bit? And then 50-50, right? Some of them are like, I, I like seeing it that way. Will you teach it that way at the ceremony? But I think it's important to see the, here that, that Paul is laying something out, addressing something, and there's something God has established that's very, very powerful and important. When you think of husbands and wives, remember, partnership. When God created Adam and Eve, they worked the ground together. Right? There's a partnership in what God has created. But when we read this passage, remember, it's easy to trust the lead of another, uh, of one who loves and cherishes you. It's easy to trust someone when they're leading you out of love. It's very difficult when you don't feel the love and you don't trust where they're going. This passage is an invitation into unity in the family and the husband and wife under Christ. And remember, everything we do is under Christ. If, 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 if a husband ever thought, well, the Bible says that uh, you know, I'm, in, I'm in charge, you're 100% wrong. And by the way, your accountability partner is Christ, and I don't think it's a good idea to get all arrogant about ourselves or, or, or manipulating scripture to say something. It is not saying. Verse 22, wives, submit to your husbands. And this is, we hear submit now, and we go, oh, every lady in here is like, oh, no, you don't. And, and, I, and I, I want to be very, like, you know, understanding of the, the, the visceral reaction sometimes things like this can have on, on, on people because of what's gone on in our culture for so long. This is an invitation not into being a doormat or, or, or checking out in your brain. This is speaking to a heart. And there is a lot of good reasons why when any woman would read this and go, uh, I'm not comfortable, there have been many bad examples of men who've, who've led poorly, maybe in their life or what they've seen or in their relationships. But it says, wife, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Now remember, all of these relationship dynamics are going to be as to God. Okay, so ultimately, what we do in our relationships Christ, God, must be mindful in how we operate. It says, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. I always tell people, this is a lot more about Christ and the church than it is about husbands and wives, but it's valuable for both. This relationship is being, I think, used to, as a parable to talk about what the relationship of Christ and the head is. But it does have value. 
It says the wife is the he- sorry the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. His body and is himself its savior. Now we're talking about Christ here. Now as the church submits to Christ, also the wife should submit in everything to their husbands. Like everything, she needs to submit in everything. And, and when we read these passages, there's there's a, a, a request, almost in a way, a command on the other end of this. I think that helps any spouse have trust in their uh, partner to say, listen, I'm going to trust your lead. But I know in our relationships, I don't make all decisions. I barely make any, some decisions I cannot make. Ann and I are partners. Are your relationship with your spouse, your partners, there are some times, you know, where if, if need be, I will lead, and I want to lead the best I can. But this isn't so much that type of passage where it's saying, okay, now you just follow and do everything that they say. But we want to trust someone sometimes when we can't see in front of us, and we go, I'm going to trust you. We need to have a trustworthy person in our life. This isn't a doormat approach to marriage at all. It's serving one another. It's loving one another. This is valuing each other and trusting each other. This is an invitation into that. Not necessarily how I, and I have heard these sermons preached in, in a way that is very unhealthy and contradictory to what I believe Christ is about, God is about, and what he's invited families and relationships into. This is considered family dynamics in order, but this is a, a, a relational dynamic that when it's functioning healthily, it can be done well, and all parties will find satisfaction and happiness in it. God's household structure is one of love and never of positional power. I'll give you an example. In Mark 9, the disciples are on their way back, they're talking, and they're talking about who's going to be the greatest, who's going to be the one in charge, who's going to be the one sitting closest to Christ. And this is what Jesus says to them. He hears them. He's like, what are you talking about? Like, no, nothing. And he's like, he sat them all down, the 12. So he took a moment. This is how important it was. They were on their journey, and he sat them all down. He said, come here and let me talk to you. And he said to them, if any of you would be first, he must be last of all, servant of all. There is no positional type of power when we're called into Christ. We're called to serve. If you want to lead, serve. That's the call of everyone. My job is to serve, not to be served, right? In any relational dynamic, we're called to serve as believers. And so anyone who chooses to lead will want to be a leader of being a servant. Simon Sinek, great leadership books that he's wrote. And he's wrote one particular about learning how to lead out of being a servant for your employees or anyone that you're leading. He says this, the truly effective and inspiring leaders aren't actually driven to lead people. They are driven to serve people. So when the Bible says husband, wives submit to your husbands, follow your husbands, trust your husbands, he's asking in the same way someone who is serving and willing to serve. But some of these believers, their husbands were not believers or they were not those who would serve and it was difficult for them at that time. 
Some of these wives couldn't get out of their relationship with their husband back then. Some of these wives had very difficult situations. And they're going, dear Lord, how do I do this? And he's saying, listen, if anything, do it unto the Lord. Now, in our culture, we're different. We have different choices now. But in some ways, some, some things, you know, some dynamics are off, some help that needs to be brought there, some changes that need to be made, but not necessarily, I think some people, unfortunately, you know, it's, it's almost, I'm out too quickly, where it's like, let's work on some dynamics. And Paul, that might be some of us in here. But he's saying, listen, if you're going to lead, lead out of service. And if you're going to follow, follow a servant leader. And then he gets into husbands. So there's this small part about wives. And then there's this long part about husbands. And this is where every, I think, man should lean in and go, okay, so what are my instructions if I'm going to lead? He says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So love her like Jesus did. Unconditional, willing to die, laying your life down. And then every guy is like, whew, whew, that's a lot. Oh, he doesn't stop there. He says, and that you might sanctify her, having cleansed her by washing the washing of the water with the word, so that you might present, uh, uh, sorry, be present the church to himself as splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any, any such thing, that she might be holy without blemish. Now he's talking about the church here as well. But he's also talking about this was, likened to a premarital ceremony that happened of the washing and cleansing and preparing in this great moment when two people will become one and saying, listen, are you going to live a life with that type of anticipation and value of the bride? Verse 20, in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. And you've heard that term, you can't really give away what you don't have. And I think it's true. Someone who, who maybe deeply hates themselves has difficulty giving love or receiving love to others. But I think it goes beyond that of one of men, and I'm not gonna, I'm just not gonna speak for all men, but I think I don't know what it is about men, but sometimes men can be very, very selfish. Is that true? Dude, come on. <laughs> they can be a little selfish and they need a lot of work. And I think that there's this thing of putting someone else first. This is called to put in the other first. There's a power dynamic shift Paul's speaking to, to a culture where they never had to do this. And he's saying, if you're going to have a household the way Christ would lead, you need to be someone who sacrifices, loves, and puts the other first so they have no reason not to trust you. Verse 29, and no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourished it and cherished, cherished it, just as Christ does the church. And are we caring for those who are in our life, our spouse? Are we caring for them? It says, because we are members of his body, therefore a man shall leave his mother and father and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Verse 32, this mystery is profound, and I'm saying it and referring to Christ in the church, meaning that Christ became one with his body. He is the head. He is leading where we want to go. We so trust Christ and where he's going, and he so loves the body that he would die for it. And so in the husband-wife relationship dynamic, if we can look through 
and past the cultural things that might have been happening where he is progressing this marital status and pull out the value what he's calling husbands and wives into. He said the relationships essentially summarizes it with this. There's two things that really will help any relationship thrive. Is however, let each of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So love and respect are very big things. There are books written about love and respect and about what each other needs, but I think that any relationship thrives and grows with love and respect. And I think a good question to ask yourself is, how would Christ treat this person? Because we're supposed to be spiritually led. I mean, Paul let, led into this, and the whole context of it is being filled with the Spirit and spiritually led. So how would Christ treat this person? That's a good way to ask. And sometimes I think, ooh, sometimes I, in relationship dynamics, I, I'm not treating the person the way Christ would like. And Paul says we can ask the Spirit to help us and fill us every day. The second relationship dynamic is children and parents. And you know, raising kids, right? How many of you have kids? Okay. So you will understand those who don't have children yet. Remember your childhood and, and when we talk about this. And also just know that this is coming for you. Okay. Raising kids is joyful, but it's terrifying. Am I right? It's fulfilling and it's frustrating. And it's, it's, uh, uh, love, it's I think to me it's loving, and, um, but it is sometimes hard. I think with kids, it goes too fast and it goes too slow. And it's amazing gifts and it's an amazing journey. And it's a beautiful gift that God's given us. And it was one of his, if not the first commandment of just be fruitful and multiply. The Bible is very clear about child rearing and the value of passing on to the next generation, maybe more clear than any culture at that time. But, you know, for kids, there's a section addressed to children. And I would say beyond just adolescence. It's, he's, Paul's going to talk about honoring and trusting parents, and, and it ultimately will pave the way in how we honor God. He says, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Ever, it's honor your mother and father. This is the first commandment with a promise, and there is a promise attached to this in, in, in uh, Old Testament scripture, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Meaning this, you're going to honor your parents, and in that practice, even if it's difficult sometimes, like all of these power dynamics, even in the practice of doing it, you are going to practice honoring God. And that's really the most important thing, is that in all of our works, we're honoring God in what we do. I remember having a student in youth ministry in Michigan, and his parents were hard, okay, I'm not going to lie. I've had a lot of difficult parents in youth ministry over the years, and um, and it's hard when you're working with a student. You absolutely love the student, but you know the parents, and because you've dealt with them a lot and been in the home, and you're like, oh, I just wish you could just stop doing that. You know what I mean? Like, just difficult, provoking their children and, and making it very difficult. And I remember one time, it, it wasn't anything abusive, so I felt comfortable to give them this advice. It was just, they were just complicating 
difficult, horrible communicators, and they projected stuff on him. It was not fun. And he was a 16-year-old boy. He was a big kid, and he ended up going into the Marines and Special Forces, and he, he was just a really nice kid. And I remember telling him, he was just telling me, like, I hate my parents. I hate them. I just, and it was, like, really hard to hear. And I just told him, I said, listen, if you have a few more years left in your home before you were going to go enlist. And I said, it's going to be hard, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you that if you can just reserve yourself and you can just, just do your very best, ask God to help you through this. And you can just, you know, just don't have to respond and react to everything, but just try to be patient. I bet you your household will calm down for you and this anguish you're going through all the time will calm. And it was so funny because in that way, he ended up just really being something extraordinarily mature and going, I'm doing, I'm gonna do this for God. I'm gonna be patient, I'm gonna hold my tongue, I'm gonna just like try to be respectful if I can as much as possible. And it made his last high school years so different for him and I was so proud of him for doing it. It took tremendous courage. And then it, I think that linked to his ability to do really well in the military and all the way honoring God and saying, I'm doing something difficult. You will be in relationships that are difficult and sometimes hard and you'll need the Spirit's work, but ultimately, God, God help me be who you want to be in this right now. And then it goes on to say, children, in, in verse 4, it says, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger and bring them into, uh, bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And so there is this responsibility placed in these who are in these power dynamics. Now imagine someone who could put their child to death at that time legally hearing this. They're like, what do you mean? Don't provoke him to wrath. I think watching a sibling get put to death would anger the other kids. And so there's something Paul is challenging this power dynamic and saying, listen, you've been given responsibility. Lead responsibly. Right, every parent in that way, to instruct and not to intimidate, to, to, to learn lessons and not lecture, to, to love and not fear, and to build self-esteem, not self-aggrandize ourselves, and to ultimately care, not control, right? There's a service, serving mentality, not a self-serving mentality. And that's hard, but it's biblical, 100%. To train up a child in the way that they will go so that they will not depart from it. And some people, unfortunately, have been trained up in a way that was not right and not healthy and not good, and it's difficult to depart from it. So we're called to train up the very best we can. And I know you're flawed. I'm flawed. I'm doing the best I can with what I got. Maybe my kids will build on that and do better. But man, we, this, this structure here, Paul's calling children to honor even though it's difficult. And he's calling parents, these parents who have so much power to actually love and care for their kids. And don't provoke them to a place that they don't want, you don't want them to be at. Care enough about them that you won't drive them crazy. The last one here is bond servants and masters. And as we, as we said, the majority of Rome was in slavery at that time. And this is a subject of its time for sure. But we can extract out something in this relationship dynamic that Paul is dealing with. And, and, and there's value, value in this verse as a, someone who's maybe now in employment. And you have someone who's a boss or a leader 
when you yourself are in a position and you work for them. But Paul's dealing with something much bigger here. Why didn't Paul say taking someone as a slave is bad? I think that's a fair question. And, and you know, I think Paul is speaking to what was a relational dynamic at the time in mass. And he's dealing with people who own slaves. And he's speaking to them directly. And so I don't know exactly why, but I do believe owning a slave would be very contrary to scripture, period, and is. But he's addressing a relationship dynamic. You have to remember that because these people would go home and they had slaves in their homes, bond servants in their homes. And, but we can take it maybe now where we're at because we're not there anymore and translate it to take the value out of it and how we operate in our life in labor. But labor he's addressing here is seen and unseen labor in a difficult moment to honor God in it. And this is hard because, you know, sometimes someone's not a good employee. Sometimes someone's not a good boss, right? But Paul's speaking to believers about being representative of Christ and, and letting Christ shine his light through you. And that will always, most likely, you'll shine brightest when it's darkest and, and, and it's the most difficult. Paul is very big proponent of even in your suffering, find joy. So he's not divorced from this, this pain that these people feel in their servitude at the time. He's in prison at the time writing this. So he understands, he gets it, unjustly imprisoned. Verse 5, bond servants, obey your earthly masters and fe with fear and trembling and with a sincere heart, because this is all about the heart, and as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service or do people please, but as a bondservant of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord, not to men. Verse 8, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this will receive, you will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or a slave. So no matter what, he's telling them, yes, you're going you're, you're gonna to read this letter from your church gathering. You're going to go back into service. And your master might not be great. But no matter what, everything that you do, don't try to win their approval and please them. Do it because you love me. Walk the extra mile because you love me. And it's hard. But God says, I'll see your heart in all of it. I'll see you. Now, let's fast forward to our time. There are times when, yes, we want to cause problems. We want to stir trouble. We're angry. We want to fight. We, we see our work is just not giving us the due credit. And sometimes, listen, I get it. But in our labor, God is saying, no matter what is not seen of you, with your heart in place, serving as you serve God. I'll see it. And we have to have an eternal perspective to appreciate this. Life doesn't always hand out roses. And life isn't always fair. And God is saying, listen, even in an injustice, I see your heart and character in all of this. Stay strong. Keep serving as to the Lord. And when labor is hard, or it's enjoyable in all circumstances. Do it for God. Our attitude, our integrity, our work ethic, our motivations, 
and I would say our trust and faith in him stay strong even when it's tough. I think sometimes, you know, people need to hear that and know that like, okay, God, you can get me through this. It's difficult, but you see the work I'm doing. No one notices it. My boss takes all the credit, but God, I'm doing it for you because I want to be excellent and integrous in what I do. And maybe that attitude will be a witness to others. Maybe. I think this, this last part, and we'll close, is integrity and accountability to God is the mindset of any believer who's in power. I hate to use the word power, but ultimately I would say maybe someone who is influential, but sometimes people are terribly uh, influencing people. But this is what he says then to believers who are in the community, who are owners of people, who are people are indebted to them and working it off, or they've bought people. He's saying, masters, do the same to them. Stop your threatening, knowing that this is important, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven. And there is no partiality with him. And God is saying to them at the time, you want to be cruel? You remember, I'm your master in heaven. I am the one who has authority over you in heaven. And so if you want to continue that way, just remember it won't be good for you. And there were a lot of injustices in this time. And some of these words were probably very offensive. I imagine someone sitting down, like, you got to come to my church, it's great. And then they read the letter and like, oh, this really offends me. I'm the master. And Paul is saying, listen, treat them good with dignity. There was a few small voices in that time, philosophers who would get up and make speeches about, listen, we need to treat people well. We cannot treat people, but we must treat them the way that we're mistreating them. But there was great cruelty in that time. It was just part of the way it was. To them, they were half human. And Paul is saying, I'm, God is, uh, in, in his eyes, you and them are the same. So remember, treat them well. As an employer, maybe we can take it from here. How would you manage knowing God is doing your evaluation? How would you manage? How would you lead knowing God's the one sitting there? I mean, I'm not saying this is what's happening, but sitting there going like, I'm not a real big fan of what you just did. I don't like how you're treating that person. That's not kind. That's not looking out for their best interest. That's looking out for you. How would you manage them knowing God's evaluating you? And how would you manage that employee if they were Jesus? <laughs> the undercover boss. Who's there? Oh, oh I'll just tell you, because that's happening. Matthew 20 and Matthew 25. It says, then he will answer them saying, truly, truly. When he's talking about people who were good to those who had no power. People who were kind to those and looked after them when they had nothing to offer but gave themselves. So he's addressing this, and this is how he finishes out. Truly I say to you, as you do not do it to one of the least of these, you do not do it to me. So I would say Jesus probably is the true undercover boss. And he's saying, how would you treat me in light of how you're treating that person? 
there's a big shift happening here. And I hope there's a big shift maybe in our own heart about how God has structured our household in a way that, yes, it's all great when we're here at church, but what are we like behind closed doors? And I know you're not perfect, but maybe these can challenge you a little bit. To these ancient people, it was very radical. To us, maybe not as radical, because there's been a lot of change in our life. But maybe some of these values, you can walk out and go, how do I treat people? Am I, that, am I selfish? Am I treating someone? Am I putting the other first? Am, am, am I someone who just wants to fight everything all the time, or can I trust? And do I have some things that hold me back from trusting I can work through? How, how is it with my children? Am I provoking them to wrath? Or even as a child, going like, is everything I want to do just disgracing and dishonoring my parents? I mean, how are these things in our life? Because when I read those stats at the beginning on purpose, it's not like our culture has perfected it. We have a long ways to go. And I hope this challenges you. It definitely challenges me for sure. Would you guys mind bowing your heads? Healthy and strong relationships are a key to the kingdom of heaven. Healthy and strong churches, unity is the key. Healthy and strong families, unity is the key. And a church is made up of households. Unity is the key. Unity behind closed doors brings unity to the body. And I would say, if anything, Paul's addressing relationships here and how they work and what's important and where our heart is in them. And if you... If you just remember something today, remember God is a relational God and therefore he cares about relationships a lot. He cares deeply about them and wants his people to be a people who value relationships, who have a household that is structured and ordered in a way and relationally that it builds and brings life and people thrive. Not a place where people are torn down or destroyed. I get it if you've come from a household where it was destructive. There's, there's, there's healing and there's life and there's redemption, there's repair and there's work that God can continue to build on a structure even if it was very flimsy that you received from your household growing up. That God can help you, spirit-led, build in your own life your household in the future or the one you have been gifted now. I've seen God heal people's lives from the most detrimental, devastating upbringings and help them become a family that thrives and it's a miracle when you see it. The Holy Spirit will give you the strength to do it and the wisdom and the church community is here for you. But I want to encourage you that if you're looking to find something here out of these passages is just to really sit with the Spirit and say, help me with my relationships. Help me become the better version of what I am now. Give me the strength. Give me the wisdom. Give me the guidance. God, we love you. We thank you so much. Thank you for these passages that Paul wrote that were so bold and so confronting. God, in the same way, confront us in our work life, in our child and parent life, and God, in our relationships. Help us be a people of integrity and character, trust and love. And God, give us guidance and direction in every part of this. And each one of us ask, God, 
that you fill us today with your spirit and tomorrow with your spirit so you will guide us, empower us, and give us direction. There is no greater gift than to be given the gift of relationships in our life. God, help us be good stewards of them so that when someone is in relationship with us, they thrive. They don't dwindle or dry up. And God, help us with some of our inabilities where we struggle and help us grow those parts so we can be fully there to give all of us. We love you. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you guys stand with me and sing this last song of worship?
Um, that was a harsh transition. Hello, testing. Can you hear me? Am I on here? Check, check. Yep. There we go. Perfect. You know, um, wow, we picked a, a strong two weeks of content to, to start a new location, right? Wow. We picked the series before we knew this, we knew this was happening, but um, I think the important things about uh, the, the, the three social dynamics that you talked about is it reminds us that while our salvation is through Christ and Christ alone, there is a, an immense social dynamic to the gospel that you cannot just have your isolated faith with you in Christ regardless of how you treat the people around you in your life. And so I think that is one of the beautiful things that this, this difficult passage at times can bring up is how you treat people matters and how you work with those around you matters. And there's so many different social dynamics in our lives. So thank you, Ryan. Um, and uh, for everyone else, we just have a couple quick announcements as, as we're on our way out um, that I, I forgot at the beginning. One is that we're uh, really excited to be doing uh, a couple projects on campus. And one of the, the first ones we're really excited about is we're going to be planting uh, trees in the, in the park out there, um, all the way around three sides, the one, not the side that's facing us, but three sides. Um, to kind of make it feel a little bit, a little more of a private park, a little maybe safer for kids and stuff like that. So we're going to be planting those. Pretty exciting. 120 trees around the whole perimeter um, on Saturday, March 27th. And so we're looking for some volunteers. If you are open to that, um, that's great. And you can sign up on the app or website for that. We're getting a big hole driller and we'll just you know, be, be planting trees. It'll be great. Um, besides that, I forgot to mention this last week, but if you are outside right now, I'll look to the cameras outside people, uh, feel free to take a tour after service. Uh, if you weren't able to get a spot inside, we want you to come see the, the sanctuary and see the kids' rooms and, the, and the, the youth and all that. So when service is all wrapped up, feel free to, to, to come and take a tour of everything. Uh, besides that, uh, there are a couple ways that you can also partner with Soundhouse Church through giving. Uh, one is by filling out one of these little envelopes and dropping it in the metal boxes in the back. You can also give through the website or uh, on the app. But that is it. Everyone, thank you so much for joining us today. Have a wonderful week. We'll see you next week.